This podcast is brought to you by the Los Angeles Inner Group of Overeaters Anonymous. Please visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three podcast feeds of over 200 sound files of individual speakers as well as events such as retreats and workshops. You'll also find order forms for ordering CDs of many of these speakers through the San Fernando Valley Inner Group of OA. Finally, we have a donation button where you can contribute to keeping this valuable service continuing for yourself and others. Again, our website is www.oalaig.org. Hi, I'm Carol. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Carol. Great. Um, I'm going to pass around a picture. Um, so you can see what it used to look like. Um, let's see. Uh, we'll do numbers. It's always an important thing in this program, um, it seems like. Uh, my top weight is somewhere around 325, give or take, because the scale stopped weighing me. The scale was a 300 pound scale, and it, you, I either got over 300 pounds or just didn't support 300 pounds. I don't know why. Um, and I have 27 years of abstinence. So it's, uh, I, and I'm. 51, so I've been absent over half my life. So that's kind of like... What kind of... What kind of, what kind of it puts everything in perspective because it really is my... I've been absent over half my life. It means I've been doing this here for over half my life. And uh, and it's just amazing. Um, a brief order description of what it used to be like. Um, I see a lot of face in this room that I know that's so kind of like, you know, maybe let's go to questions I don't know. Um, but what it used to be like um, so I never forget, because if I forget, then I'm just going to repeat it. That's why I've been told over and over again. That's why I've seen happen over and over again in this program. Um, it's for being an old time where I get to see a lot of people live what I've been told not to do. You know, I get to see them do the things that I've been told not to do, and I get to see the results. So it's been, I've been very blessed with that. But um, you see the picture of me. That's uh, my senior, or that's my high school. And you can see I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty fat and ugly, um, for lack of a better description. Um, someone wants to ask me if I ever change the oil in my hair. Um, <laughs> but I mean, the fact of the matter is, I didn't bathe. Bathing was not really one of those pleasant things, and that's, you know, I couldn't really bathe because I couldn't fit in the bathtub, and showering was not one of my pleasures because it once again to try and get down even to the legs and so forth. It was just took a lot of effort, a lot of work on my part. And it also took a lot of self-esteem to, to be clean. You know, um, it was, that took self-esteem to really bathe. So, um, and my life um, really consisted of just a lot of being miserable at school, being terrible the barrel, you know, being told by kids don't get near the water, uh, Niagara Falls because I'll fall over, um, being ridiculed, um, and then I would go home, and I came from an alcoholic family. This dysfunction runs very, there's a long history of dysfunction in my family, so I, you know, I really had no choice but to come to a plus program, either in, in Sang Asylum, that's what, the, what I was told, you know, basically. And, and so, I mean, I, I, I just, I would, come home, I would come home, and there was no respite there. There was no caring, nurturing, so forth. Uh, my stepfather called me a fat ass kid and told me why didn't I have any friends and why didn't I get out and socialize and you know what was wrong with me and you know just berate me you know so it wasn't it wasn't really pleasant and so it was just really you know and, and of course I grew into that family and that's something I was born into so I discovered that um, 
fudge sickles made life better. I discovered that at a very early age, that fudge sickles just made life better. And the reason why they made life better is because I didn't have to think about what was going on in my life. And I, I, it was never this conscious decision. I mean, it was never this thing until I came into program. But I literally know that if I'm eating food, I'm not thinking about my, 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 my story. If I'm, th- if I'm thinking about what food am I going to get, I'm not thinking about my life. If I'm thinking about what I ate and how fat I'm going to be and so forth, I'm not thinking about my life. I'm thinking about symptoms of my life. I'm not thinking about my life. And if I did think about my life, I wasn't given the tools to change my life. I wasn't given the tools to grow up. Um, and one of the, I always say that, you know, one of the best tools my parents gave me was, if you want something done right, do it yourself. You know, and that was the type of stuff that I was raised with, that, you know, you've got to have backbone. You know, and you've got to spell able. All that type of stuff was stuff that I was raised with. Not that, you know, trust God, you know, what will be, will be, you know, this today is another day, and so forth. No, it was literally, you know, one of my favorite sayings was, don't tell the neighbors everything you know. You know, and that was the stuff that I was raised with. So I learned that at an early age to go out to get food to, to, as a bomb, as to soothe my, to soothe it. And it really was just so I didn't have to feel. And it's amazing how much the mental processes regarding food, weight, and eating can take up the, my mind. And it can take up my mind a lot. Of course, I have an obsessive mind, so I can obsess about it all day long. I can obsess about what I ate last night all day long. I can obsess about how fat I am all day long without thinking about how, I, how can I grow up, how can I change, how can I improve my life. Um, anyway, I came to the program first time in 1973. And that's the way you get to see it. And that's a color picture that I passed around. That is my senior picture. And um, I probably came to the program maybe a couple months after that. Um, I came in 1973, and it really was different then. And uh, it really was middle-aged housewives and an occasional man in the room. But I was blessed at my first meeting that at my first meeting there was a, um, a man who got up and talked that he said he had lost 100 pounds. And it, it was the first time I, in my life I believed that I could lose weight. So what that man gave me in my very first meeting was hope. And at 17 years old, I was hopeless. Now it's kind of hard to imagine a 17-year-old boy being hopeless, but I was hopeless. Because I believe there's two types of people on the planet. There was fans and there was fats. And occasionally a fat, I mean, occasionally a thin became a fat, but a fat never became a thin. And at 300 plus pounds, there was no way in the world I would ever achieve a normal body size and maintain a normal body size. But yet here was this man at this meeting saying he had done it, and I believed him because I knew that you're not supposed to lie in, in AA or in 12-step meetings. I know you're not supposed to lie from the podium. So I believed him, and it gave me the hope. And so what I did is I, I, um, I uh, took the suggested food plan, which is on a gray sheet of paper at that time, and I lost 125 pounds in five months uh, on that gray sheet of paper. Um, and, of course, at 17 years old, um, eating, like, no carbohydrates, and I graduated from high school, and I went to go work on a shipping loading dock, lifting mag rims, and so I, you know, it was like, literally, I became very physically active, and I cut my food back to, like, 
literally two eggs and an orange for breakfast, that of course I lost weight. And I lost weight very quickly. Um, but now, the other parts of the program, the steps for my sick alcoholic parents, I didn't need that. Um, because, see, all I needed to do was lose a little weight and get a few friends. And that's all I needed was to lose a little bit more weight and get a little more popular. And that is one of my character defects to this day that I think about my life that has still not been completely removed. If I can just get a little bit more thinner and get a little bit more popular, then my life will be wonderful. You know, if I can just lose another five more pounds and become a little bit more popular, a little bit more in the A group, whatever, then my life will become better. Um, so I did need the steps. I did need God because I had, was raised um, Southern Baptist and I knew about God because I prayed to God every night. I said, God, please, when I wake up, let me be thin. And God, please let my parents stop drinking and fighting. And my parents kept drinking and fighting and I'd wake up the same weight that I went to bed at. So I kind of got at a very early age the deal with God. And, since, and see, God, in the Baptist, God is all-powerful. God's all-potent. So it was literally... If I'm praying and God's not answering, then literally I am, the, I am the wrong person here. I am the sinner, and I am full of sin, and therefore that's the reason why God's not answering my prayers. Of course, I had a deep, dark secret. I couldn't tell the living soul, and that's the reason why I was a sinner, and that's the reason why God was not answering my prayers, and that's why God was cursing me with alcoholic parents and a 300-pound body. And that, so that was the reason why I can't work the 12-step program. Now, I did come to OA meetings once a week for moral support. Well, I was losing the weight, dropping the weight. Of course, the dropping the weight also gave me a lot of support and it gave me a lot of ego gratification. Vanity was kicking in and so forth. So that I really didn't need to come to Overzonot. I mean, I really didn't need Overzonot. I wanted, I loved the fellowship that I saw and I wanted, but I was too sick to fit in. And I was a 17-year-old boy that was not fitting in to middle-aged housewives. So I had all the reasons why I didn't fit in and I didn't participate. I did not, I did not claim my seat. I did not claim my seat. Um, I did ask this woman to sponsor me. She, uh, during the break, she said yes. And after the break, she came back and said her sponsor said she's too full and she can't sponsor me. That's my one crack at the program. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, guys, if, if you just give me one crack at the program, you'll come back. Because that's what happened to me. I gave it a crack and it wasn't, it was, you know, I got down to the weight and it just, um, I got down to 175 pounds. And I literally um, was, um, didn't need was anonymous anymore. And I went away to college and I was being very, you know, it was kind of like I left the path behind me. But the thing I've learned is just by dropping weight and just by moving does not leave the path behind me. Because I brought all my character defects, all my fears, all my anxieties. I did not write an inventory the first time around. I did not work a 12-step program. And since I did not work on those things that made me seek excess food in the first place, I had to go back out and eat again. And I got back up to 250 pounds again. The entire time while I'm, while I'm putting on weight, I was bragging about how I can lose weight and how much weight I've lost. You know, the disconnect that goes on in the brain. I can lose weight. I've lost 125 pounds. I can lose weight as I'm gaining, going up in weight. Um, anyway, I dealt, what happened was I dealt with that sin that I was so, I knew that God hated me for, and that was that I came out of the closet. And I really believe that a lot of us, almost all of us, you know, I won't say all because that would be presumptive, but I'm, almost all of us eat over our sexuality. 
Um, which is, when I say sexuality, involves, involves body image, involves intimacy, and involves all that stuff that we go, like, turn the lights off, don't touch me here, don't do that, and I'm going to get to know me because I want to eat my food right now. All that stuff revolves around sexuality for me. And my sexuality um, was the fact that I was gay, and I, was, and I finally came out of the closet. And when I came out of the closet, it was really one of those deep, dark secrets that I was eating over. Because they say we're sick as our secrets, and if I was in the closet, I was being secretive, and I was eating over my secrets. So I didn't need to go over that secret anymore. And also, it was told to me um, before I, I came out that if I lost the weight, I'd get the girls. I wasn't really excited about that. <laughs> after I came out, the stuff I lose the weight, I'll get the boys. And that was interesting. <laughs> so basically, I, I, uh, I got down to... Um, I, I kind of discovered the wonderful world of fasting. I had this nervous stomach while I was coming out. I clearly had a hard time eating because I was just really, I mean, I was like an obsessive personality. I would go ask everyone in the room, what do you think about if I'm gay or not? I don't know if you've ever seen, I know that type of compulsive personality where, you know, I'm going to ask everyone in the room if they think I'm gay to make it okay for me to be gay because everyone in the room says it's okay for me to be gay, then I'll be gay. But if no one in the room thinks it's okay for me to be gay, then I won't be gay. I don't think that's a people pleaser I am. Um, so I had this extremely nervous stomach and I couldn't eat and I also just, like I said this given a wonderful world of fasting because when I came to meetings for, on, on a weekly basis the first one around I heard this really wonderful thing that says it's not the 100 bite that puts the weight on it's the first and I love I didn't take that first bite all day long I was safe from food and for me it was really about being safe from food because once I took that first bite I didn't know where it would stop but if I didn't take that first bite then there was no there was no stopping and in a sense, that's what's happened with my absence. My absence is no sugar, no flour. And it has been for 27 years. So for 27 years, I've not had, um, you know, chocolate, uh, Mrs. C's. I've not had a donut. I've not had a, you know, a wheat bread sandwich. I've not had cake. I've not had cookies for 27 years. And so that's, um, I, you know, there's been some derivatives from rice flour, which really, you know, to me just doesn't really count because it's just really... Sucks. But I mean, literally, it's like, you know, but there's nothing like a good piece of German chocolate cake, which I have not had in 27 years, or a nice apple fritter, which I've not had in 27 years. Um, Because, like I said, what it was is I've learned that if I don't say, I don't have to figure out how much sugar and flour I can handle, or I won't have to stop the sugar and flour, because what happens with me when I eat sugar and flour, the physical addition kicks in, and I can't control the intake. Now, when I eat iceberg lettuce, I can control the intake. When I eat carrots, I can control the intake. With met with uh, corn chips, not so much. Con- you know, it's like I have, a, but you know, it's that gray area. And it's all about, you know, I've learned that it's not black and white. But I know what is black in my essence. I know what is white in my essence. And that Mexican enchilada meals feels good. And it's higher in carbohydrates and kind of numbs me out. And it's just a little bit, but it's still not breaking essence for me. Um, so. Um, so, I, like I said, I got down to 160 pounds on what I call my donut diet. Uh, some of you have heard about this donut diet before, and literally, if you don't eat anything all day long, except 9 or 10 donuts at mm. night, as you're coming home from the discotheque, um, and it was the 70s, and we went to discotheques, and I was dancing in the middle of gate while I wasn't dancing, I was standing in the corner, actually. And the reason why I stand in the corner is because I was afraid to be, I was too ashamed, and I was too self-conscious, and I would be standing in the middle of a crowded, or in the corner of a very crowded, dark disc dance floor, Studio One, where there's hundreds and hundreds of men, and I'd be in the corner being afraid to move my little finger. Because I know someone would walk up to me and say, Fat boy, what are you doing here? You're too fat and you're too ugly. Go home. You moved your little finger the wrong way. 
And that is me at 160 pounds, which is probably 40 pounds less than I weigh now. But I was too thin. I mean, I was too fat. So thin is not well. Um, what got what brought me back to the program the second time um, was that I was at 160 pounds, give or take, you know, because it was walking with the donut diet, you know, between 160 and 165. Um, and I did weigh myself. I weighed myself, you know, and that was where, you know, I always wish I could find a scale that weighed me in grams because the ounce was too big of a measurement. You know, I, I want to know exactly how many grams I gained or how many grams I lost because my, the, the judgment of the day was based upon my weight. Now, it had nothing to do with what was going on in the world, but it had to do whether I was down on my weight or up on my weight. Down on my weight, it's going to be a better day. Up on my weight, a bad day. Um, so I was right, hovering around 160 pounds for about a year or so, doing my donut diet, maybe two years. And um, through the process of being fitted for contact lenses, um, my eye doctor, um, he couldn't get the prescription right no matter what he did. He asked me if there was a history of hypoglycemia or diabetes in my family, and I said yes. And he said, asked me if I'm eating sugar, and I said, um, a little. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't cop to nine or ten donuts. Well, actually, to me, a little was probably, uh, in my head it seemed like a lot, but after it was not a lot because I can eat a three-pound box of these candies as long as I can eat, get, the, get enough milk to balance it out, do the chemistry work, you know, where you, you eat too much sugar, so you drink a little bit more milk to get enough protein in you to level you off so you eat more sugar. And you say, you don't, you know, because you don't want to pass out yet, but you're trying to pass out, and you don't eat, you know, maybe you never ate to blackout, but I mean, I ate to blackout. I would eat to blackout, and that's what I wanted. To, I mean, literally to, I should say, pass out. I just wanted to pass out. I did not want to function as life. I did not, I was not come to my own skin. I wanted out of me. And I found that food got me out of me. But the problem is, I can't stay out of me. I am me. I am in this body. I cannot, like, vaporize and go someplace else. And no matter where I go, I bring me. So, um, um, he may ask me if I'm eating a little sugar. I said, I said, or I shouldn't ask him eating sugar. I said, a little. He said, if I did not stop eating sugar, I'd be blind within a year. And um, I then proceeded to uh, go to Europe on vacation for a six-week vacation. I put on 30 pounds in six weeks. And I did it by eating a lot of sugar. Um, I, I assume Paris has vegetables. I do not know them. I assume that Germany has vegetables. I do not know that. Back then, I did not know that. Since I've gone to Europe. And, you know, but, um, and literally, I binged my way through Europe. Because 30 pounds in six weeks, that's five pounds a week. That's a pound, almost a pound a day. And that's touring through Europe. That's not sitting in front of your TV with the curtains drawn and the, and the uh, telephone plug. That's moving my body. So you can imagine I'm doing some heavy-duty eating. And while, while I'm putting on this weight, my pants are getting tighter, and I'm going up in weight, I can remember thinking, um, I can still see when things start to go gray, that's when I'll stop. And that's where my disease takes me. To that point that I'm willing to risk my eyesight for one more bite of chocolate. Just one more bite. That's all I want, just one more bite. And I since when I sacrificed a lot. I was willing to sacrifice a lot more than just my eyesight for just one more bite of chocolate. Just one more bite. That's all I need. Just one, one more bite. Um, and I tried kicking sugar in, in a... In a 
in Europe. I was about three, four weeks in that binge. I wound up in a plaza in Vienna, and I had gone all morning long without eating sugar, and I went through physical withdrawals, and I was sick. And I was screaming at the top of my lungs, though I was crying on the outside. But I was screaming inside, going, please help me, I cannot stop eating. And that was my first step. Because I knew that I could not stop eating. No matter how much I wanted to. And then when I did, I would become physically ill. So, I believe my God was merciful. And he allowed me to keep binging for two more weeks. Because that way, if I probably got absent in Europe or stopped eating in Europe, I would have probably came back to the United States and would have just continued on my life on my donut diet. But what happens, I continued binge for two more weeks. And when I came back, I called my sister, who was a member of Always Anonymous, and I said, I need to come to your house to dry out. We didn't have eating disorders back then. And so she said, Tara, I'm out of town guest, but I will take you to a meeting on Sunday. So, she, so I got out the big book, and I started reading the big book, because I knew that's what would work. I was living with my alcoholic parent, um, who was in AA at the time, and I, could, I got their big book and I read their big book. And that's how I stayed absent for two days before my first meeting. And um, I went to my first meeting and it completely blew me away because I had all the reasons why I couldn't do that gray sheet of paper one more time. I had all the reasons why I would not fit in one more time. I had everything, all the excuses why I could not do this program one more time. But see, at 17, I wound up at the last house on the block. And at 17, when you went up to the last house on the block, where the hell are you going to go? Where are you going to go? I was, I mean, I'm in it. This, I mean, now I'm 51. I'm still at the last house in the block. But so I, I went to the meeting, and there was a speaker there who was a moderate mealer, who was totally, you know, in the liberal side of the of compulsory reason at, uh, at that time. And then I found out that there was a meeting, the Gay and Lesbian Community Service Center, so I couldn't use that excuse. There was like, uh, literally, it was, I, I was just, and I became a member of Overs Anonymous. And I, like I said, I, I went to, I became a member and I became a solid member because I was going over as an five to seven, probably six to seven nights a week. I don't remember how many nights a week the, the center had, but there's almost a meeting every night. And my life consisted basically of going to work, going to meeting, going to fellowship, going to bed, getting up, going to work, going to meeting, going to fellowship, and going to bed. And I ran into people, and they told me, Terrell, to eat is to die, and I laughed in their face because I had just binged, and I was not dead, and they told me all time and time again to eat is to die, and I laughed in their face. But now I know to eat is to die. And I don't laugh in anyone's face when they tell me that now. Because when I eat, I kill me. And it's not even suicide, it's murder. Because if I... If I... I when I, if I killed that boy, if I, and I always say, you know, about suicide, it's like, you know, if I have taken my life, or what, what I was doing to me, was I was killing the man that I am today by eating. And it was really, it was really a shame, because I'm really a fabulous guy these days. But by continuing to eat, I was continuing killing me, and really murdering me and my spirit. Um, so, um, what, what happened was I continued, I, I, like I said, I was going to meetings and became an active member of his anonymous. I started sponsoring people. I was sponsored. I had a spiritual awakening and it was um, very undramatic, very, very simplistic. 
Um, I was walking out of Bosbury Park on a Friday night after a step study. It was on the 12th step, and I had no reason why I could understand related to the 12th step because I was I had really had one or two months in two months in program, and I thought that was way beyond me. I'm just working, you know, working on step one and two. And as I was walking to my car through the park, um, this I heard this small still voice, and this calmness came over me. And the small still voice said, "Terrell, you're going to be okay." You have as much right to be here as that tree. And it was the first time in my life I didn't believe that I was breathing your air. It was the first time in my life I didn't feel like that you folks just tolerated me. That you were, by any second now, you could go, and I would be disappeared. Because that's how it was. I felt like my existence on this planet was. That literally, any second now. And that's literally the way I grew up. And my, my stepfather would, would threaten my mother that she was going to throw her and her fat-ass boys out in the street. You know, I had no... I didn't have that. So that was the first time by going to... by spiritual experience, I felt like that I was home and I was going to be okay. Um, so that was literally in the fall of um, 1978. But I got absent. My absence date is January 6, 1979. So obviously that, day, that wasn't all the end of it. What happened was, I got cocky. Um, see, I don't want to be a member of Rovers Anonymous. To this day, I don't want to be a member of Rovers Anonymous. To this day, I don't want to be a compulsive overeater. To this day, I hate you folks because I am you. But to this day, I love you because I am you. And the, what took me out the last time was I went to my sponsor and said, I'm, going, I'm sick and tired of going to these rooms full of fat-ass people talking about their problems. I'm sick and tired of being told what I can and cannot eat, what I can and cannot eat. I want to go live my life. On a Friday night, I'm going to be out dancing with boys in Palm Springs. I do not want to sit in some damn meeting in Cedar sinai Hospital. And my sponsor said some magic words to me. He said, remember, Terrell, you're leaving us. We're not leaving you. If you ever want to come back, we'll be here. And I'll pass those words on to you. If you ever leave us, remember, we never left you. And if you ever want to come back, we'll be waiting here for you. And that's what happened for me. What wound up is I, as I was driving from my sponsor's house at that point in time, I was, I mean, actually at that time it was my ex-sponsor because I just gave, I just quit the program. And I remember talking to God because I had a spiritual awakening. I had a spiritual experience and I knew about God now. And I was driving home to my house and going, okay, God, you and I, I'm going to do what I need. To, I'm going to go live my life and you know, eat what I want. We're going to go enjoy life. To hell with the reason I was to hell with those people. I'm going to go live my life. And I found out I was doing a lot of talking to God thinking I was being spiritual. And I've since learned that the, only, the best way to be spiritual is to listen to God. That I don't need to say a word. I do not need to say a word to God because I believe the universe hears before I even open my mouth. Universes, the universe even hears my thoughts and my actions. So, but at this point in time, I was, I was done. I was done with the reason I was. And what happened is I wound up on, on January 5th, 1979, I broke that absence that I, was, that I had. And I broke it on two pieces of toast. And that is my last binge. Two pieces of toast. I know it's not doesn't sound very good, does it? You know, 
And if I knew that was my last danger, I might have done better. <laughs> but, but that was what happened was, when I had two pieces of toast, and like I said, I'm, I'm hopelessly addicted to sugar and flour, and I don't know how to eat it like a German, and I don't know how to stop. And when I ate those two pieces of toast, I saw the donut stand, and it was a donut stand I'd never been before, and I was, I was um, going to go and get my donuts. And it was all about the love inside that that donut stand would provide me. And I got really scared. Because you folks said the door will always swing out. But you never know if the door will swing back in. And one more time I had gone out. And, I, and what happened is I went to bed and I started praying. I said, God, please help me. I cannot do it one more time. I cannot binge one more time. I cannot do it. And the prayer had nothing to do with weight. Because I had my donut diet. I knew my donut diet could keep my weight at 160 pounds. But it was about... The, the price it pays on my soul, the price it takes out on me and my spirit to go binge and the constant thinking about food. So on January 6th, I woke up, called my sponsor, been back ever since. Now, for me, getting abstinent was, I don't know, getting, getting, getting abstinent was just because I couldn't do it anymore. But staying abstinent, the first year was hell. Second year was hell. Third year got better. Fourth year got better. Fifth year got better. Sixth year got a little rank. Seventh year got really rank. Eighth year sucked. Ninth year got better. Tenth year got better. You know? Um, I, if you're in your seventh, in a six, seven, eight year range, bless your heart, baby, I understand. I thoroughly understand. The human ego comes back at age five where we think we become hot shit because we have five years of abstinence. And we start dealing with what we call newcomer stuff, which really just the, the, we, the character defects come up again in other ways that we didn't think they were. We learn that we have to let go of our character defects even stronger and more. That the price that character defect took on our spirit and our soul when I was one exacts a much higher price when I'm seven. And exacts a much steeper, super price when I'm 27. That sucks, but that's also a blessing. It truly is a blessing. Um, but I have been through hell and back absent. I have been... I have lost my sister, who was the closest member of my family, who I loved and was, was everything to me. Um, I found out I was HIV positive back when it was a death sentence, and I didn't know if I had two weeks to live, two months to live, two years to live. I've gone through breakups. I've been abstinent, which I think to me is this is the most difficult time to be absent. When I made a phone call to the boy, and I'm waiting for him to call, return my phone call because I asked him for a date. You know, when you want to pace the floor because you think, he, is he going to call me back? Is he not going to call me back? Did I just put myself out there? What's the story? Um, and what I was told in the beginning is you do not eat no matter what. And I've found that I do not eat no matter what. Now, my, if you look at my food, sometimes you might go, we call that abstinence? And I'd say yes. Because of a black and white abstinence, I really know whether I'm abstinent or not. And a lot of times, when I was that seven, eight year time frame, I mean, one meal consisted of sugar-free frozen yogurt, sugar-free chocolate chips, and potato chips. And that was lunch. And I was like, no, I mean, it's not a really healthy food choice. It really wasn't a healthy food choice. And I was beating myself up and going like, oh, I'm not eating donuts, you know, and you know, I'm not really abstinent. And I had to ask myself, Tara, what is your abstinence? 
And I'd say, to, uh, you know, I would literally say to myself, Terrell, did you eat sugar? And like, no, I did not. Terrell, did you eat flour? No, I did not. And back then I had three meal a, uh, three meal a day restriction. And I'd say, was that a fourth meal? I go, no, it was not. And I'd say, Terrell, shut the fuck up. Shut up. Because you're still absent. Because see, as long as I'm still absent, I still have the hope that I can go continue to grow. Now, can I continue to eat those type of meals three day, three times a day, four, seven, eight, you know, days in a row? No. It will. I, I, what I had to do is I had to start writing inventories. I had to start praying to God. I had to start cleaning up my house. Because literally, it's just the scent, the food is the barometer of what's going on inside. So yes, a, a crazy meal. It's like yeah, you know what? It's a crazy meal. And I can say it's, I can chalk it up to a crazy meal. You know, it's made me the best food choices. But several days of crazy meals, I'm running from something. I'm hiding from something. If I'm putting weight on, I'm not really looking at what's going on in my life. I can't blame it on the fact that I've had going out to dinner three or six times this week with friends. I can't blame it on a hot dryer. I can't blame it on the fact that Mexican food just sounded good every day this week. I can't blame it on that. I, I'm aware. I'm conscious. Um, I to get 27 years. It has been a lot, a lot of work. It's been a lot, a lot of work. I don't know anyone in this program that gets long-term absence that didn't do a lot, a lot of work. The big book in our literature continues says we have to have that moral psychic change. We have to grow, we have to change, we have to grow, we have to change. It continually says that there is change going on in my life. And I don't want change. I want to coast. I, and I found this with other people, a sponsor and so forth, that we're always trying to find that, either that knight shining armor to come and rescue us and take us away and protect us, or we're trying to get to that spot where we just want to just let the world go away and we can just go, just breathe, just stop. Because when I'm controlling my life, when I'm running my life, when I'm binging, when I'm not in, walking in sunlight of spirit, life is hard. Because I'm trying to manipulate and control you and my surroundings to make it make me okay. And I've learned that I can't do that, that I can't control and manipulate you or my surroundings and that I have to go into acceptance mode. And if I don't like what's going on, I, I, it's not that I get to change you, I, I get to change me. That I have to adapt to what's going on. Now, I might be, cons- I might be Pollyanna. I mean, literally, you know, sometimes I would say, maybe you're just being too Pollyanna. I mean, people say I'll find the good in anything. That, I, you know, I look for the good in people. That I look for the good. You know what? If I'm Pollyanna and it's just really twisted of me to be Pollyanna, so be it. I'm happy. And that's what I want to be. Is I want to be happy. So if I'm wrong by being Pollyanna, well, who cares? I'm happy. And if you're not happy, try being Pollyanna. It worked for me. <laughs> you know? And how do I get to be Pollyanna? It's by working the 12 steps and 12, uh, the 8 tools and practicing 12 traditions in my life on a daily basis. You know? And like, literally I had to take this, the steps and treat them in a different way. I had to, um, I had to reinterpret it for me. So when I said step one, it's literally just say, I can't do it. I really can't, I can't control you, I can't control myself. I don't have the car I want, I don't have the job I want, I don't have, well, now I actually have the car I want, the job I want, I'm self-employed, so I should have the job I want. Um, you know, it's like I, did, I could go through this list of litany things I didn't, that, like, I didn't have. And I knew that I'd been trying to, been trying to have self-esteem and try to control and everything, and I knew I was able to do that, so I got it. I better turn over something that's better than me, because I'd walk in these rooms of Rovers Anonymous, and I'd hear other people 
feeling better about himself. So I said, okay, I'm going to turn over that. And um, literally it said I had to go back and look at my part and stuff. And it's like, you know, I had to go clean up my side of the street literally. I had to go see where I had made mistakes. So I had to keep repeating those mistakes. And I had to go tell another person about those mistakes because, see, I can manipulate myself. I can rationalize to myself. So I had to go tell another living soul what was going on. And I also get rid of the shame because as I told you my, my mistakes, I got rid of the shame. But when I kept my mistakes to myself, I carried the shame of those mistakes. So I literally had to do a step, a fifth step. And it wasn't a perfect fifth step. It, wasn't, it was a really bad fifth step. It's one of the worst fifth steps I've ever heard. Not on my part, but on my sponsor's part. For what he did. Um, and then I had to do step six and seven, which literally says, I can't fix me. No matter how many times I try to fix me, I can't. So God, I'm going to let you. Step eight and nine, literally, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have become, I was self-centered. You know, today, this morning, I was thinking like, you know what? I am still jealous. I'm a very petty, jealous person because you know what? I want your boyfriend. You know? I really, I want your boyfriend. I mean, you know what? I don't want any other man except your boyfriend. Now, because my boyfriend, I don't want him anymore, but I want your boyfriend. Why? Because I'm jealous of your boyfriend. I'm jealous of that. I mean, it's like, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm still, I still twisted. You know, 27 years into this deal, I still want your boyfriend. You know? Um, and if I really looked at that, I'd go, I really don't want your boyfriend, I'm just jealous of you. Um, and that makes me a compulsive overeater. Um, step 10 is literally, I just continue to roll inventories, and I write inventories. And I don't write so many inventories anymore because literally it got to the point where I was writing the same thing over and over again. And it was like my sponsor go, like, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, and so I don't really write inventories because I'm really current. After 27 years, I'm very current with what's going on. And I get to laugh at what's going on because as I continue to look at my inventories, I continue to say, oh, there's that character defect. And I get to laugh at me. Step um, 11 is literally uh, um, self-repair meditation. I told you, I don't talk much to God anymore. I do very, very, very little praying. I literally just be still and listen. And I just try to rest my soul. Today I do about 30 minutes of meditation in the morning. Um, on weekdays, weekends, not so much. And step 12, literally, is um, I'm here doing service. For some reason this year I went up being the chairperson of um, LA Intergroup. So I give service on the intergroup level. I travel around this country speaking, and it's not glamorous, no matter what you think. If you want to be a circuit speaker, go for it. It's not glamorous. You go to places, and you wind up talking, and it's not that glamorous. Um, but you know what? It's because I pay back. And because God gave me a gift to speak, I go share what I have. And if I keep it to myself, I don't get to keep it. And I will take your phone calls, and I sponsor. And most of all, I get to live my life by the principles set out in this program. Which, believe it or not, people today tell me that they want my life. That they want to be me. And when you see that boy in that picture, no one wanted to be me or be my friend. And that's what this program's given me. It's allowed me to shine and to be a man that people look up to, respect. It looks uh, and allows me to be a, per- a man that I look up to and respect. And every now and then I want to beat myself up because I'm not doing it well enough or something like that and I have to remind myself that the steps are, are a measuring stick, not a whipping stick. And so I get to put the whipping stick down and pick up the measuring stick and look to see how far I've come. And I've come a long way. I've come a long way and I've got a long way to go because I'm 51. 
and I've kind of been here for another 30, 40 years. So I hope to God I have 60, 70 years of absence. And I hope to God I'll be talking at 70 years of absence. I can, you know, when I was 27 years old, I didn't know nothing. I didn't know anything, right, you know? And that's what I hope to do, because as long as the program, the literature says, as long as I continue to grow, I don't have to go back. But as soon as I stop going to grow, I'm going to repeat. And I don't want to repeat. I don't want to repeat of revenge. I don't want to repeat of self-hatred. I want to repeat of what the children not And um, I guess that's it, unless anyone has a question. I set my alarm clock for an hour earlier than I need to get up. Um, I meditate. I read some parts of the literature. I mean, part two, three pages of literature. Um, I meditate for half an hour. I um, I take phone calls from my from people I sponsor. Then I get to live my life with a with a spirit of today is going to be a fabulous day, serendipity, and this is something that's really after 27 years. I don't know that sometimes I really don't know the difference. And when I hear my people I sponsor talk, I go like, Oh my God, I don't think like that anymore. I used to. So literally, how do I work my program on a daily basis? Literally, the 12 steps have now worked over my brain so much that I think healthy, that I really think today is going to be a good day. That I really think that today you like me. That today I really think that you're happy to see me. That today I really think that I know what I'm doing in my job. And that's how I work my program. Oh, I try and smile at everyone. That's how I work my program on a daily basis. You wake up happy? Yes. Every morning. Every, well, some mornings, you know, I, I drink. I, I, you know, I drink alcohol, so it's not my problem. But every now and then I'll go out with friends. I mean, I, 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 I'm a gay man in West Hollywood, and I go party a lot. And, you know, we go out drinking. So sometimes I wake up hungover. So sometimes those mornings are not. I don't wake up quite so happy. Like, uh. But sometimes alarm clock goes off because I went to bed a little early, a little late, you know. But 99.9% of the time, I wake up cheerful. I wake up cheerful, no matter what the day happened the day before. Because I, I really believe today is going to be a fabulous day. Uh, Terrell, Mickey, Compulsible Reader. Uh, so, Terrell, um, okay, so uh, the years five through eight are going to be kind of a rough go. Yeah, I don't know anyone that think was a rough go for. <laughs> but that's okay. I, I tell you, I mean, I, I always say this because it literally is, you know, also, just so you know, 18, 19 is kind of, kind of bad too. Okay. But really, it's like, but what happens is, don't give up, because it gets yeah. at 10. And that's why I say you're a newcomer until you get 10 years of absence. Because really, at 5, the human ego, because we go through a lot of stuff. We do a lot of cleaning the house at 3 to, uh, in, you know, in the beginning, especially from 3 to 5, we clean a lot of house. And what happens around 5, like I said, we become hot shit, and the human ego comes back, and people look at us, and you start buying our press releases. And you cannot buy your press releases. And I, I mean, I know I get a lot of press releases, and if I start buying the press releases, you know, one thing that someone told me is says, for every Palm Sunday, there's a crucifixion. Uh, <laughs> so really, but 
what happens is I believe that we start we stop doing what worked for us in the beginning and we said well that's newcomer stuff I don't have to do that writing I don't do that that's newcomer I'm and what happens is if you stay abstinent and there's some people call it the seven year itch but if you stay abstinent through that then you'll get to ten and then it becomes less and becomes fabulous again and I mean it's not like it's, it's like shitty really bad but what happens is the human ego comes back. And when we're living with the human ego as opposed to somebody the spirit, there's a difference. And there's a major difference. And if you're in that time, you'll know what I'm talking about. And the first time I heard this, I was like, who does she think she's like, she I'm, you know. And then a small voice in the back of my head went, she knows. She knows. So I saw that recognition when you go like, yeah, he knows. <laughs> and like I said, 19... Not so good either. <laughs> okay? You know, but that's okay. And if you're new and you're just getting absent, it's crappy. Don't let anyone fool you. It's crappy. But you know what? Go and keep repeating what you're doing. Because other, I mean, you wind up in a meeting of Overs Anonymous on Saturday night, so obviously it's got to be really good out there for you if you came here on a Saturday night. You know what I'm saying? So this is where, this is where we say, like, okay, if you're new, like the first year, then it's going to be crappy. Now you have a pink cloud, you have some wonderful feelings and all that stuff is going to be great, but you're going to deal with all that stuff you ate on for the past umpteen years, you get to deal with. But deal with it because as I was told in the beginning, I'll end with this, you may walk through the fire tonight, but you walk through the fire in the morning. But sooner or later you have to walk through the fire. And by the grace of God, I decided to walk through the fire when the fire was at my heels and I got to grow and I get to be who you see before you. And that, I'm grateful to you folks. Thanks.